Let's take our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Now the first event introducing Jesus' ministry was His baptism. Jesus' baptism is significant for three key reasons. Number one, it's significant because it was how Jesus began His priestly and kingly ministry. The baptism itself served as the ceremonial purification for the priesthood. The Holy Spirit's descent upon Jesus in the form of a dove was His anointing to priestly and kingly service. And the Father's announcement authenticated that Jesus was the Messianic priest king sent to redeem humanity. Now Jesus' baptism is significant for a second reason. It demonstrates the veracity of the triunity of the Godhead. At one moment in time, all three members of the Godhead were present from the viewpoint of humanity. God the Son was standing in the Jordan River. God the Spirit appeared as a dove and descended upon the Son. And God the Father spoke from heaven, announcing His love and approval for the Son. That all three members are present strikes a deadly blow to the false teaching of modalism, which purports that God only exists in one form at one time. And a third reason that the baptism is significant Jesus' baptism is significant because it announces Him as the sin offering. It announces Him as the sin offering. We, we, we noted that His baptism occurred in the season of Rosh Hashanah. As He approaches John to be baptized, the herald says in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His announcement, as we pointed out, is both rich and deep theologically. In Aramaic, when John announced the Lamb, Talia, he also announced the servant. That Aramaic word lamb is the same as servant. And so that announcement, behold the Lamb of God, is an identification, a declaration, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7 and 11 says, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth, but by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, justifies the many and will bear their iniquities. In Hebrew, the term lamb, sheh, can also be rendered as goat. Again, it is the season of Rosh Hashanah. And so to announce that here comes the lamb or here comes the goat of God is significant considering the Day of Atonement was but days away. On that day, the Day of Atonement, the priest offered a goat as a sin offering. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be the sin offering on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is the Passover lamb, but he is the sin offering goat on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement also requires a scapegoat upon which the people's sins were met metaphorically laid. That scapegoat would be led into the wilderness and would typify or picture God removing the sins of the people and remembering them no more. The prophet Isaiah said again in Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 6, Surely our griefs he himself what? Bore 
and our sorrows he carried, and the Lord caused the iniquity of all of us to fall or be placed on him. Jesus was that sin offering goat. His sac- he sacrificed his life on the cross, becoming the sin offering, the once for all offering, to remove our sin, to pay our penalty of sin, to remove God's wrath from us, and to rescue us from the lake of fire. He is also that scapegoat. And as that scapegoat was led to the wilderness, look at what Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Indeed, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And as the scapegoat, Jesus removed the sins of all who repent, carry away the sins of the repentant, to remember them no more. Now Matthew continues introducing Jesus here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, with the temptation of Jesus. Now you ask ourselves, how does the temptation of Jesus square with the baptism of Jesus? You know, we're coming off of this momentous victory, and now we're seeing this, you know, almost defeat in the wilderness. How do these two events square? Well, they square in light of Jesus' priesthood. You see, the baptism initiated Jesus into the priesthood, but the temptation will demonstrate, number one, that he is the sinless priest. He needs no sin offering for himself. But it also demonstrates that he is a sympathetic priest who ministers to my need and your need. Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because we have a sinless priest. We have a priest making intercession for us. We have a sympathetic priest who knows our struggles because he himself has been there. Now Matthew sets forth three things in these 11 verses. He sets forth the timing of the temptation. He sets forth the type of temptation. And then he sets forth the termination of the temptation. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2 with the timing of the temptation. Matthew 4, 1 to 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Notice we begin again with that temporal marker, then. It denotes the timing of the temptation. Following his baptism, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, according to Mark chapter 1 and verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out to the wilderness. In other words, no sooner had Jesus come up out of the Jordan River, no sooner had he been anointed by the Spirit, that that same Spirit led him into the wilderness. Now, the Judean wilderness is a hot, barren area that is approximately 35 miles long and 15 miles wide from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus went. 
Matthew reports that Jesus was led, anago. He was brought into the wilderness by the Spirit. Mark says that he was impelled, akbalo, or driven by the Spirit. Now, these two verbs, when we put them together, emphasizes that the Holy Spirit both guided and directed Jesus into the wilderness, but not just into the wilderness. Indeed, the Holy Spirit guided and directed Jesus throughout his ministry. And here's what's even more interesting. In some instances, the verb led, anago, means to offer up a sacrifice. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit guided Jesus to the cross to offer him as a sacrifice for sins. Listen to what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, the Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Holy Spirit led him to the wilderness and led him to the cross and offered him up as the sacrifice for sin. Now here the Spirit led Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word tempted, parazo, has a negative and a positive aspect. Positively, the word parazo means to be tested. But negatively, it means to be tempted to sin. Well, how do we know if it's a testing or a temptation? Well, you have to notice who the agent is. Who's doing the testing or the tempting? You see, if God is the causing agent, then it's a test or a trial. We encounter trials. God uses trials to prove the genuineness of our faith or the genuineness of our commitment. Now, if God is not the agent, then what you are facing is not a trial or a test, but a temptation. And the purpose of temptation is to cause you to sin. Now, James 1 verse 13 is very clear, ladies and gentlemen. No one can say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Folks, God does not tempt anyone with sin. God may test you and try you, but he never tempts you. On the other hand, the devil most assuredly tempts you to sin. Who's the devil? John provides the answer in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. He says that great dragon was thrown down The serpent of old, takes us back to creation, who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. You see, my friends, the devil is none other than Satan himself. The devil, the diabolos, means that he is the accuser, the slanderer. That's a title. It's not his name. He's also referred to the devil because he falsely accused God of evil in the Garden of Eden. John tells us in Revelation 12.10 that the devil is the accuser of our brethren, He accuses them before God day and night. So not only does Satan accuse God, but he also accuses the people of God. Falsely, I might add. Satan is also not his name. Satan is a title. Satanas transliterates the Hebrew term, or the Hebrew title, Satan. Simply means he's the adversary. So he's the diabolos, he's the accuser, He's the slanderer, but he's also the adversary. This title, Satan, or Satan, was given to the angel who sinned and attempted to take God's throne 
for himself. In Ezekiel 28 verse 14, the prophet says, He was the anointed cherub who covers. Now one of the jobs that the cherubs have is to guard the holiness of God. So here's this cherub who is meant to guard the holiness of God. And this cherub, instead of guarding God's holiness, according to verse 16 of Ezekiel 28, was internally filled with violence and he sinned. Of course, we're familiar with his sin of pride. He five times announced that he was going to take out God. This anointed cherub, what is his name? Well, according to Isaiah 14, 12, Yahweh says, How are you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? Now, the Hebrew name that's translated here as star of morning is Hallel. So his Jewish name is Hallel. In the Latin Vulgate, that was translated as Stella Lucida, meaning bright star. We have taken the term Lucida and have derived the term Lucifer. So hence, Lucifer, or Hallel, the anointed cherub who fell, came to tempt Jesus. And by the way, this isn't the only time the devil tempted Jesus. He tempted him repeatedly throughout his earthly ministry. Luke chapter 4 and verse 13 says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. This was the first temptation, but there were more to come. Until an opportune time means that Satan tempted Jesus on other occasions. In Luke 22 and verse 28, Jesus said to the disciples, You are those who stood by me in my trials. Now the word trials there is parisimas, the same term rendered as temptation in Luke chapter 4 and verse 13. The same uh, cognate of the term tempted, perezo, in Matthew 4, 1. In other words, what Jesus says there, you were with me in all my what? All my temptations. They were eyewitness to the temptations of Satan. Now, they obviously weren't eyewitnesses to this temptation because he's alone in the wilderness. He doesn't even have followers yet. So the fact that the disciples saw some of the temptations means there were others besides the one recorded here in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4. Paul explains in Hebrews chapter 4 and 15 that Jesus has been tempted in all things like us, yet without sin. Though Jesus was able to be tempted, he was without sin. Now, we have to take a moment here and dig a little deeper into what it means to be without sin or to not possess a sin nature. There's two theological positions that have come out of this. One is called peccability. The other is impeccability. Peccability, P-E-C-C-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Peccability. Just add I-M and you get the reverse. Impeccability. Now, you say, well, what's the big deal? Do we really need to understand this? Let me tell you, my friends, this is an important theological issue that we need to grasp a hold of. Because the question comes down to, is Jesus not able to sin or able not to sin? You say, well, it sounds like you're saying the same thing. And in essence, yes, not able and able not. I'm using the same words. But where that word not and able go speaks volumes as to whether or not Christ possessed a sin nature or did not possess a sin nature. 
Peccability teaches that Jesus was able not to sin. Now, what they're implying is that Jesus had the ability to sin. And they argue that, well, the only way for the temptation to be genuine is if Jesus had the ability to sin. They go on to say that if Jesus could not sin, the temptation wasn't real, and that Jesus cannot sympathize with his people. And believe me, there are many today promoting this heresy. Now, I've played my hand, because I've already told you that obviously peccability is not the correct point of view. Now, whether or not you remember the term peccability is irrelevant at this moment. What you need to understand is it's Christ was able not to sin is wrong. Impeccability teaches he's not able to sin. He has no ability to sin whatsoever. Why? Because he does not possess a sin nature. He had no capability for sin. And listen, whether or not somebody has or doesn't have the capability of sin doesn't, has nothing to do with the genuineness of a temptation. And again, what was the purpose of the temptation? The purpose of the temptation, from God's point of view was to demonstrate that Jesus was what? Sinless. He had no sin. And because he had no sin, he was the Son of God. And by the way, who initiated it? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now listen. If Jesus were able to sin, the Holy Spirit would then become guilty of inviting him to sin. But James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So the fact that the Holy Spirit led him there to be tempted by Satan implies that Jesus was not able to sin. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit is leading him to be tempted and cause him to fall. You say, but pastor, isn't Jesus 100% man? Yes, he is. But that does not necessitate him possessing a sin nature. You see, when Adam and Eve were created, were they 100% human? Yes, they were. But when they fell, they took on, they inherited a sin nature. From the time of creation to the time of the fall, they were 100% human. But at the moment of the fall, they were still 100% human, but also now... They had a second nature, a sin nature. When Christ came, he did not possess that sin nature. Why? It goes back to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Romans 5.12 says, One man brought sin into the world and has passed that sin down upon all so that all have sinned. You see, Adam, when he sinned, he sinned as our representative but that sin nature that he inherited, he now passes down. But remember, did Jesus have a human father? No. So therefore, because he's virgin born, he does not inherit a sin nature. So he has 100% humanity, but he doesn't possess a sin nature. The lack of a sin nature doesn't make him less than human, however. Also, not only is he 100% man, but he's still 100% God. Christ has two natures. Well, that's impossible. Wait a minute. Don't you have two natures? Yes, you have a human nature. You have a sin nature. And once you're saved, that sin nature begins to be put to death, but now you inherit what? 
a new nature. So you still have two natures. Well, he has two natures, a human and a divine. And those two natures are intertwined. In one person, the God-man. Understand, ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus exists eternally as the God-man. He's always been God. But a moment in time, at the incarnation, he took on that human nature, and he today continues to have that human nature. Those two natures cannot be separated. They're forever fused. Now, can his divine nature sin? No. He's, listen, he's God. He's sinless. And as God, he is what we call immutable. What does that mean? It means he doesn't change. Hebrews 13, 8, Paul says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Also, think about this. As divine as God, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Hebrews 1, 3 says, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, if Jesus had the ability to sin, that means that he is powerless against temptation. Can that be? No. He's all-powerful God. He's omnipotent. So obviously he must have the power to overcome temptation. As divine, he's also omniscient. What does that mean, omniscient? It means he knows all things. John 2.25, it says, He did not need anyone to testify concerning the man, for he himself knew what was in man. As God, he knows all things. The problem with sin is sin is deceptive. And for sin to be deceptive, for you and I to be deceived by sin, and we've all been deceived, means we have to be ignorant of facts. We have to be ignorant of some truths. But if Jesus is the all-knowing person, then he cannot be deceived by sin. Because his divine nature is not able to sin. His human nature, which is intertwined to it, also is not able to sin. Let's come back to Matthew 4. We've established that who the the tempter is, it's Satan. We've established the fact that the temptation is genuine, but that Jesus is not able to sin. Now, Jesus' temptation occurs not only after his baptism, but notice the next phrase, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. Brings to memory the fast of Moses and the fast of Elijah. Moses and Elijah are two central figures in Judaism. Moses represents the law, Elijah the prophets. And by the way, the fact that he fasts 40 days and nights like Moses and Elijah sets the stage for Jesus to be the fulfillment of what? The law and the prophets. Just as he says later in Matthew chapter 5, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, when I went back and looked in the scriptures and look at Moses' 40-day fast and Elijah's 40-day fast, they both fasted as they approached God's mountain. They're both in the wilderness. Moses says in Deuteronomy 9.9, I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tables of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had made. Then I remained on the mountain 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. 40 days and nights. 
According to 1 Kings 19 and verse 8, Elijah arose and ate and drank and then went on in the strength of that food with, with nothing more to eat for the next 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Same place Moses was going. Through 40 days and nights of fasting, guess what? Moses and Elijah learned the sustaining power of God's grace. Because that's the only thing that got them through. Their flesh was weak, but God's grace sustained them. And so now, in his human flesh, Jesus now learns the sustaining... Now think about this. As God, he knows the grace... But as man, he learns the sustaining power of God's grace, grace that's going to be necessary as the temptation and the tempter draws near. Now, one last phrase before we move on to verse 3. Matthew states that after fasting 40 days and nights, Jesus then became hungry. Well, that's an understatement. One or two days, well, not even a full day. We'd all be hungry. 40 days and he's hungry. But listen, it's actually not an understatement. Here's, what, here's one of those unique things about Scripture. And it really shows you we have a divine author. If you fast for a period of time, the initial hunger pains actually begin to pass after about the first day. By day two, three, so on, you don't feel hunger. Interestingly, though, at the 40-day mark, a new pain develops that indicates your body is now in starvation mode. So when, when Matthew says that after 40 days and nights he became hungry, it means he is now in starvation mode. At the moment his body is at his weakest, Satan attacks. Look at verse 3 to 10. Matthew sets forth the types of temptation in verses 3 to 10 of Matthew 4. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and says, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I want to remind you of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Jesus was tested in all things as we are yet without sin. In other words, he was tempted in all areas. Now what are the areas or what are the types of temptation that we face? 1 John 2.16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now grammatically, those three statements are what we call a subjective genitive, which basically can be rendered this way. The flesh that lust, the eyes that lust, the life that is proud. These are the very types of temptations that Satan presented to Adam and Eve in the garden. First, he appealed to the flesh's lust. Try this fruit. It's good. He then appealed to their eyes' lust. This fruit looks delicious. 
Finally, Satan appealed to their life's pride. This fruit will make you wise like God. And now Satan comes and tempts Jesus in the same three ways. His purpose in the temptation of Jesus is to ultimately frustrate God's plan of redemption. Now, notice this. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, where did he tempt them? In a garden. But Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. It's the complete opposite. The garden is filled with all kinds of food and peaceful animals, but the wilderness is barren. There's no food. He's been starving for 40 days and nights. And Mark 1.13 tells us that the, where he was at was filled with wild beasts. And even though the temptations are the same, how vastly different are the locations? How vastly different are the circumstances? Nevertheless, Jesus overcame the temptations in a harsh and dangerous environment. And what a lesson for you and I, folks. That victory over temptation has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has nothing to do with your location. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden with everything at their disposal. Jesus overcame temptation in the wilderness with nothing at his disposal. Satan approaches and says, If you're the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Now, he's not casting doubt on whether Jesus is the Son of God. This is what we call a first-class conditional clause, which means we can render it this way. Since you are the Son of God. Satan's acknowledging who Jesus is. They've known each other for a long time. Approximately at this point, 4,000 years. Okay? We're 4,000 years from creation, roughly at the point of the temptation. So from the time of creation, Satan has known Jesus. He knows that he is the Son of God. He knows he's the second person of the Godhead. What Satan is about to do is try to cause the Son to sin. And if he can cause the Son to sin, he can destroy the Godhead. He tempts Jesus first with the lust of the flesh. Now let's talk about lust. Epithumia. It's a desire for someone or something. Now, not all lust is wrong. Not all lust is wrong. For example, in Philippians 1.23, Paul says, uh, the des my desire is to depart and be with Christ. The word desire there is the same Greek word, epithumia. He literally lusted to depart and be with Christ. So what makes a lust sinful? Basically, the object that's being lusted for. Okay. Intense desires are only sinful when the object of that desire is evil. Flesh. What's flesh? Socks. It's carnal needs. Okay? The word flesh here refers to your carnal needs. And we all have carnal needs, and not all carnal needs are inherently evil. For example, we all get hungry. That's a carnal need. Our body needs food to survive. But when the flesh, when the flesh lusts, when the flesh has an intense desire beyond simply eating a meal, that desire can become overeating or gluttony. And Proverbs 23.20 warns us, don't be with heavy drinkers of wine and don't be with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come into poverty. You know, hunger, not a problem. Satisfying the hunger, not a problem. Overeating, sin. Okay, it's basically what he says. During Israel's wilderness wanderings, they were hungry but had no food. God provides them manna to satisfy their hunger. But he wanted them to collect only what they needed for their daily provision. Collect no more, no less. If they collected more than they needed for their daily meals, what happened? It turned to worms. It rotted by the next day. 
His purpose, God's purpose was to teach Israel that they had to trust in him to provide for their daily needs. Don't rely on self-provision. Rather, God's people need to learn how to rely on divine provision. That's an important lesson for us, folks. If we're we're trying to self-provide and we're not relying on divine provision, guess what? We're going to come up zero every time. Now, after 40 days and nights of fasting, Jesus is starving. And Satan tempts him. Turn the stone into bread. Now, we know he can turn stones into water. Can he turn stones into bread? Absolutely. Listen, here's Satan's mindset. Jesus, if God provided bread, for those grumbling Israelites. Why has he not provided food for his beloved son in whom he's well pleased? Just as he had done with Adam and Eve, Satan is beginning to cast doubt on God's character. Listen, you're the son of God, Satan says. You shouldn't have to endure hardship. Use your divine power and appease your carnal appetite. Compease your desire for food. He ultimately wants Jesus to rely upon self-provision rather than divine provision. But remember, friends, Jesus did not come to serve his desires but to do God's will. He said in John 5 and verse 39, I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. He knew he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to fast. He knew he was led by the Holy Spirit there to be tempted. And that meant that Jesus knows he had to rely on the Spirit and the Father to meet not only his spiritual needs, but his physical needs as well. If Jesus yields to this temptation, he would have used his power, his divine power, for self-gratification. And then he would have sinned. And if Jesus sinned, he would have ceased being God, and the Godhead would have been fractured. Notice how Jesus responds. He says it is written, Grapho, which literally can be rendered, it stands written. Uh, Listen, this word grapho here, written, anytime you see it in the Gospels by Jesus, it always means one thing. He's quoting the Hebrew Scriptures. Specifically, he's going to quote from the Torah three times in dealing with the temptation. Somebody says to me, I don't know why we need the Torah or the law of God. Listen, Jesus used the law of God three times to overcome temptation. If it's good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for us. Now listen. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What does he mean? Well, we have to look at the context of Deuteronomy 8. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses is reminding the Israelites, you've got to depend on God to provide and meet your daily needs. And so he says in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 8, God decreed your daily provision. That manna you have from God is his daily provision. But that manna is not what's keeping you alive. The point of Deuteronomy 8.3 is bread does not keep you alive. It's God who keeps you alive. The only reason you're living, you're surviving in this wilderness for 40 years is because God decreed it. Now, knowing that God provided bread for disobedient children in the wilderness, Jesus knew that God would provide food for him at the appointed time because he was the beloved, pleasing son. Later in John 4.34, Jesus tells the disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was his food. 
My friends, I would challenge you that instead of worrying about your daily provision, instead of attempting to gratify your fleshly desires, how about you concern yourself like Jesus did with obeying God and depend on Him to meet your needs. As Paul said in Philippians 4.19, God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now the second temptation Satan takes Jesus into the holy city and has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now the pinnacle of the temple refers to one of two corners, either the southwest corner or the southeast corner. The southwest corner is where the priest stood to blow the trumpet calling people to worship. The southeast corner overlooked the Kidron Valley some 450 feet below. Okay, That's a big jump. Satan says, if you're the Son of God, again, first class conditional clause, since you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down. And notice what Satan does now, folks. He's going to legitimize his temptation by quoting the Scripture. Guess what? Sometimes we're guilty of this too. We want to make a point. We want to prove our position. We'll quote a Scripture. Be careful. Because that's exactly what Satan does too. Make sure if you're going to quote a Scripture, you're not misquoting the Scripture to fit your position. That's what Satan does here. He says, Psalm 91, this is what he quotes, verse 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning... Notice he, Satan even says, it's written. He uses that same phrase. It's written in the Hebrew Scriptures. He'll command his angels concerning you. On their hands they'll bear you up so you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Folks, I say again, Satan knows the Scripture and he will twist them for his nefarious purpose. Now this is an attack in the area of the pride of life. Pride is the false pride of self-exaltation, conceitness, being conceited. And it's not just any kind of pride, it's life's pride. Life here, uh, bios, mean, it describes this pride as drawing attention to yourself, doing something to attract attention from others. And you see, what, Je what Satan's ultimately doing here is he's telling Jesus, hey, listen, show off for the people. Jump off the top of the temple. Draw attention to yourself. And it'll be okay because the Father will dispatch the holy angels to save you. Ultimately, what, Jesus, what Satan is saying is this. Listen, you need a supernatural um, show or display to prove that you are the Son of God, the Messiah. If you want these people to follow, you've got to do something spectacular. You've got to do something sensational. Now again, he said ultimately it's, hey, listen, if you do this, you can prove to be the Messiah. You can prove to be the Son of God without going to the cross. Here's what's interesting. Uh, around the same time frame, there was a guy named Thutis who gathered a bunch of people, claimed he was the Messiah, went out to the Jordan River, said, I'm going to split the Jordan River in two to prove I'm the Messiah. He failed. Then there was this Egyptian cat who gathered, a, he, he's mentioned in the book of Acts, but he gathers this group of people together, he claims to be the Messiah, and he's gonna, he goes up to the city of Jerusalem and he commands the walls to fall down flat. He failed. Okay? But notice, they both tried to do something sensational to prove they're Messiahs. People were looking for some sensational Messiah. And Satan's playing into that. Satan quotes the scripture to entrap Jesus. Now, why? Because in the first temptation, Jesus quoted the scripture. Jesus confirmed that he lived according to God's word. 
He, re, he also refused to use his divine power to meet his personal needs. So now Satan ratchets up and says, okay, that's fine. Well, instead of you quoting God's word, I'll quote God's word to you. And instead of you using your power, hey, claim the scriptural promise and use God's power. Use the Father's power to protect you and prove you're the Messiah. Satan's one slick character. He twisted God's word in the garden by misquoting God. God said in Genesis 2, from any tree you may freely eat. Satan misquotes God's word in Genesis 3 and says, did God say you shall not eat from any tree? And he does the same thing here. See, Psalm 9111, I want you to listen carefully. If you look up Psalm 9111, you're gonna, you'll see where the, where the misquote is. He will give his angels charge concerning you. Here it is. To guard you in all your ways. Satan omits that part of the verse. Now why is that important? Because it sets the parameter for angelic protection. They will protect Jesus. And Psalm 91 is a messianic psalm. So stop trying to, you know, we, we can't claim that for ourselves. Okay. Psalm 91 is about the Messiah. When the angels protecting the Messiah. Okay. Um, but your ways, that phrase there, refers to behaving according to the Lord's will. So as long as the Messiah behaves according to the Lord's will, the angels will protect him. But that also then reasons what? If the Son does not operate according to God's will, the angels aren't going to protect him. Jesus says in John 5, 19, I do nothing of myself unless I see the Father doing it. Whatever he does, that's what I do. I behave according to the Father's will. Now, if he jumps off the roof of the temple and places himself in a life-threatening situation to provoke divine protection, that behavior would not line up with his father's standard of conduct. Nowhere did his father command him to do that. Therefore, to do it would be sin. And so quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, Jesus says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, what's the context there? Moses telling the Israelites or reminding them of their sin at Massa. Now, in Exodus, you got to go back to Exodus 17 for that. They're thirsty. They're dying of thirst. Oh, we're so thirsty. We haven't had anything to drink in an hour. Uh, and so, you know, God, you must have brought us out here to die from thirst. Exodus 17, 7 says, they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, he, you know, where's God at? Huh? I'm thirsty. Where's he at now? They wanted God to prove himself. You know, listen, he had provided for them. Brought them up out of Egypt with all the money of, of the Egyptians, crossed the Red Sea on dry land. Brought, time and again, he's provided, 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 and yet it's not enough. They now demand another occasion for God to prove himself. And he says, I'm not proving anything anymore. And so in resisting the temptation, Jesus quotes the scripture, reminding Satan, yes, I might be the son of God, I might be equal to God, but I'm not in a position to demand the Father prove himself. My friends, you and I are not in a position either to test God. We do not have the right to demand God do more for us than he has already done. You start telling God to prove himself, what you're saying is you really have a lack of faith. And friends, let me say, while God's promises in the scriptures are true, 
while they're available to each and every one of us as believers, let's not misquote them. Let us not misapply them, regardless of how noble our cause may be. And also beware. Beware of using the scripture for unrighteous endeavors. Third temptation. Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, why this mountain? Well, this goes back to, the again, the Torah. Uh, in Deuteronomy 3.23, God told Moses to go up into a high mountain to the top of Pisgah and look out to the west, north, the south, and see everything with your eyes. And then later on in Deuteronomy 34 and verse 1, Moses went up from the plains to the Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, and the Lord showed him all the land. Well, Satan takes him up. We don't know if it's Pisgah or which mountain it is. It doesn't matter at this point. But he takes him up to this high mountain and says, Listen, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world as far as your eye can see. And you have to ask yourself, how in the world, in what frame of mind must Satan be to think he can offer the world's kingdoms to Jesus? Well, let me explain. You see, at creation, God invested humanity with the authority over this earth. But when Adam and Eve sinned and submitted to Satan, they turned that authority over to him. That's why John says in 1 John 5, 19 that the whole world lies in the power under the authority of the evil one. He is the prince of the power of the air today. He's the one in charge. All the kingdoms of the world right now belong to Satan. Satan offers those kingdoms. If you'll fall down and worship me. Listen. I know why you came. I know you came not only to redeem humanity, but I also know you came back to judge me and take back the authority I stole from you. Jesus says in John 12, 31 and 16, 11, judgment is upon the world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. The ruler of this world has been judged. And indeed, when Jesus returns, as we've seen in other scriptures, he will take possession of the world's kingdoms. But, if he takes the shortcut here, if he possesses the world's kingdoms by worshiping Satan, understand that would mean Jesus becomes indebted to Satan. Satan would then have greater authority than he has now. He might have the kingdoms of this world, but he doesn't have the universe. If the Son of God, if God himself worships Satan, Satan will give up the kingdoms. What does a kingdom matter when you now are the God of the universe? And that's what Satan would become. He would accomplish what he attempted several millennia ago to ascend above the Most High. And so he now tempts him in the area of the lust of the eyes. Now this lust has to do with, our, with visual appeal. And listen, folks, God created our eyes to enjoy beautiful or visually appealing things. Nothing wrong with that. But when those eyes intensely desire... For things they cannot have, it's called coveting. And we know what Exodus says about coveting in chapter 20, verse 17. Don't covet your neighbor's house, wife, servants, ox, donkey, or anything. That belongs to your neighbor. Satan wants Jesus to covet what he himself has wrongly possessed. Here's an opportunity. Here's an offer, Jesus. You can repossess authority over the kingdoms of the world without suffering the cross. But Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Now, notice something unique here in this third temptation. He never mentions Jesus being the Son of God. Does in the first two, but not the third. Why? 
Well, in the first temptation, Satan appealed to Jesus as God's son and what he could do for himself. Turn stone into bread. In the second temptation, he appeals to what the father can do for Jesus, his son. Well, jump down and your father will save you. But now in the third temptation, here's what I can do for you if you do something for me. Folks, we can never trust Satan. He is the father of all lies. He promises more than he can deliver, and he'll take more than he says. I love Jesus' reply. Go, Satan! Not just a dismissal, that's a command. Job 1 demonstrates this great truth, that Satan can only operate to the degree God allows him. You understand that? Satan can't do anything more to you than what God allows. That's encouraging on one hand. So when Jesus dismisses Satan and ends his temptation work, Jesus is demonstrating his deity. Now let me give you a word of caution here, folks. Michael the archangel in Jude 9, greatest angel, chief of all of them, okay, most powerful one, did not dare rebuke Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Believer, you and I have no business arguing Satan, binding Satan, or debating Satan. That's just that's Jesus' job, not yours. Leave that to him. Now, Jesus closes this part of the text by saying it is written, Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, if he worshiped Satan, he would be acknowledging Satan as God. And notice here, here's a great lesson for us, folks. Worshiping and serving go hand in hand. Worshiping, though, always precedes service. Service is born out of worship. Serving God is no replacement for worshiping God. You, you, know, you can't be serving God if you're not worshiping God. You've got to worship, then serve. Okay? And worship, on the other hand, without service is incomplete. We've got to make sure we get our heart, our horse and cart in their right positions. Finally, verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. We now have the termination of the temptation. Fallen and rebellious as Satan is, he cannot withstand God's rebuke. Go, Satan! And the devil left him. Now, folks, again, I said we don't have the authority to rebuke Satan. But I'll tell you what you can do. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. See, Ephesians 6, 17 says, how you resist him. You resist him with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You do what Jesus did. You quote the Scripture. You resist him, he'll flee. Now, I love this last phrase. Behold, angels came and began to minister. Behold, remember, here's something important, folks. Pay attention. Because whereas an evil angel tempted him, Holy angels came to minister to him. And that word minister, diakonio, same word for deacon, began to serve or attend to the needs of Jesus. Now in what ways did they minister? I have no doubt they brought him food. He was certainly hungry. By the way, Psalm 78, 24 and verse 25, he rained down manna upon them to eat, gave them food from heaven. And man did eat the bread of angels. I don't know if he ate manna or what he ate, but he ate something, and the angels provided it. I'm sure because angels are created to praise God, they were doubtless praising Jesus. And I also think that not only was Jesus obviously hungry, but 
He was fatigued mentally, physically, spiritually. And I believe that these angelic creatures ministered to him by watching over him as he slept. They guarded him against the further spiritual attacks from Satan, the roaring lion, and any possible physical attacks from the wild beast roaming the area. Satan tempted Jesus. Jesus was victorious. And you know, friends, he's going to tempt you the same way. Same way he tempted Adam and Eve, the same way he tempts Jesus. He's going to come at you either with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. But we have a pattern set forth to us by Jesus which we can follow. But it's going to take prior preparation. And that prior preparation that Jesus did involved fasting and learning God's word. Now, I'm not encouraging anybody to do a 40-day fast, okay? So, uh, that, you know, Moses, Elijah, and, and Jesus, they're the only three that did a 40-day. But there's nothing wrong with fasting. Well, how long has a fast got to be? The Bible doesn't say. It's whatever you said between you and God. But the purpose of fasting is to learn the sustaining power of God's grace. You know, if, if we can learn the power of God's grace in an area of physical weakness, such as hunger, if we can learn to work through the hunger pain and wait on God, then that's going to provide us when the temptation comes against some other area of weakness. Because if we can see God's hand of working in our life in our hunger pain, then we can certainly see his hand of work and his sustaining grace in other areas of weakness. Knowing God's word, best prescription against sin. Psalm 119.11, Ezra says, Your word have I hid in my heart, so that I will not sin against you. But my friends, you can't just have a bunch of facts. You've got to have applied truth. You've got to apply the scripture to your life. And my friend, I would also want to challenge you, don't rest on your laurels. You know, I think sometimes we get to a place in our life we think, man, I know it all. I've, I've studied everything I can study. I don't need to study anything else about God's Word. Friend, let me tell you something. Satan's been studying this book from, for several millennia. we got a lot of catching up to do. And only a continual study of God's Word is going to give us an ounce of an edge over Satan's misconstruals of Scripture. Don't stop studying. And finally, let me say this. Victory over temptation not only needs prior preparation, but present. Mark 14, 38, he told the disciples, keep watching and praying so that you may not come into temptation. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Be alert. Spiritual dangers are all around, folks. Even in ideal situations, whether you're in a garden or the wilderness, whether you're in a, in a secular location or a sacred location, temptation's coming for you. It'll come anytime, any place. And so discipline your bodies for holiness. Know God's word. Be alert and be people of prayer. And on that note, let us pray. Father God, I would come to you and ask, ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, to give us victory. Give us victory over temptation. You've laid out the pattern for us. You've showed us the example. We know it can be done. And so, Father, by your grace, through your indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, through our high priest who is interceding on our behalf, equip us and enable us when those trials and temptations come, that we would not give heed to the devil. I pray, Lord, that we would guard our lives, guard our flesh, our carnal desires, guard our eyes, that we'd give no opportunity to the devil. I praise you, Father, to know that he's on a leash. 
Satan can only go as far as you allow him to go. He can only afflict as far as you allow him to afflict. He can only tempt to the degree you allow him. And we know that with each temptation, you provide the way of escape. And Father, you've laid out that way of escape right here in your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to discipline our bodies. I pray that you would help us to know your sustaining power of grace in our areas of weakness. Help us to know your word. Help us, Father, to be on guard and watching. And help us, Lord, to constantly be in prayer. Father, we want to be victorious. We confess, Lord, there are many times that we have not been. We have fallen. We have gone into sin. We have succumbed to the temptation. But Father, I pray that with every new day that dawns is a new opportunity to be victorious. And Father, to the end that we can praise and glorify you in our victory over sin, help us to that end, we pray and say, Amen.